Hello, future billionaires. Welcome back to a new episode of the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast. I have a fun interview for you today with a gentleman named Andy Lee of Parallaxis Capital and very, very fun discussion all around one particular asset class that you've probably never heard of called TRAs, Tax Receivable Agreements. And really cool background. He tells a story of why he got a master's in taxation, really is the way to appease his dad and just not have to do a lot of work, but it actually ended up really working in his favor, finding a very unique asset class of C-Corps that kind of creating these receivables and it gets all into it. Really, really cool stuff. But again, with our goal here, investing a billionaire, we like to do a lot of different things. One of them being educating around unique, interesting asset classes that you maybe never heard of and things that are very interesting and happening in the alternative finance space. So got to give the caveat as they do with any Body coming on the podcast that is potentially raising capital. I've not done any due diligence. I brought them on to our podcast purely out of curiosity, just wanted to understand what they're doing. So we didn't really get into any of the specifics. You know, if you have interest, you can do your own due diligence, reach out to them and check it out. But just want to be clear, we've not done any due diligence, and this is purely out of curiosity uh, to bring them on to talk about something very interesting. With that, if you are enjoying the show and you're not already subscribed, please do so. And if you can leave us a review, that really helps us, get the word out, get on bigger guests onto the show so we can keep adding more value-packed content. And I hope you enjoy this show. Thanks. This is the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast, where we uncover the alternative investments and strategies that billionaires use to grow wealth. The tools and tactics you'll learn from this podcast will make you a better investor and help you build legacy wealth. Join us as we dive into the world of alternative investments uncover strategies of the ultra-wealthy, discuss economics, and interview successful investors. Looking for passive investments done for you? With Aspen Funds, we help accredited investors that are looking for higher yields and diversification from the stock market. As a passive investor, we do all the work for you, making sure your money is working hard for you in alternative investments. In fact, our team invests alongside you in every deal so our interests are aligned. We focus on macro-driven alternative investments so your portfolio is best positioned for this economic environment. Get started and download your free economic report today. Welcome back to another episode of the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast. I'm your host, Ben Frazier, and I'm joined by my friend Andy Lee of Parallaxis Capital. Very excited for this conversation. So uh, Andy's team reached out and said, hey, we had to talk about TRAs. And I first thought, well, what the heck is a TRA? And then second, <laughs> no, we haven't. So I'm excited to bring Andy on. Uh, he is the founder of Parallaxis Capital. He's previously with Lone Star Funds and uh, spent his career early on at Citigroup. Um, you know, lives uh, in New York in the heart of finance and doing a really cool thing in this space. Uh, called TRAs or tax receivable agreements. And I think you said it before on our other call that you focus on esoteric uh, financial instruments or something like that. And so this is something that's very uh, different, right? Very unique in the, even within the alternative space, but something that is, well, not well understood, but has some really unique, cool dynamics that I'm excited to dive into. So um, Andy, uh, give us a little bit of background on you and kind of how you found your way into the TRA world. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. So look, I'm from the middle of nowhere, not too far from you. I'm from Champaign, Illinois. 
And I had the option to go to college a little early. I went to college when I was 15. Um, when I graduated, I was too young to sign a lease in New York City. And so my dad refused <laughs> to let me go. I really wanted me to pursue a PhD. Um, I refused. I didn't want to join the family business in that regard. Um, but he had obviously dominion over me at that point of time. And so I was forced into a compromise. And I so I did, instead of a PhD, I did a master's. And I did a master's in taxation. The reason for which, frankly, was twofold. One, it had a no coursework participation grading, whereby you didn't need to go to class to get your um, to get an A. And two, <laughs> it had an open book exam at the end of the year. So for someone who didn't want to go to, want to, go to class, it was an absolute godsend. Um, I did that. I started my career up at Citigroup. In there, I advised um, between two companies who were undertaking a transaction to resolve their TRA. Um, Cloud Peak, a coal mining business, and Real Tinto, a major miner. And in that regard, I was like, this is a fascinating opportunity set and an interesting instrument. Someone should provide third-party liquidity for the opportunity. Went down to a firm called Lone Star Funds down in Dallas, Texas. And they said, the only way you get promoted here is for you to create something. And so there are a number of things that we ideated around the one that got furthest and off, us off the ground was in monetizing tax receivable agreements and what I do today. And the firm said, this is a fascinating concept. How much do you deploy annually? I said, $100 million, thinking that was a large number. And they said, <laughs> missing several zeros around that. Um, the firm is call it in a $100 billion zip code from an asset management perspective. And so partners basically said, Andy, why don't you go do this? We'll give you money to go do it. And if it doesn't work, come back in two years. That was 2017. We've raised a number of vehicles since um, and built a team around the opportunity set. Um, but it's a labor of love and a lot of growing pains. Man, that, that that's a great story. So you kind of fell into it by by accident, looking for the, the, the shortcut to get out of school and learned really, I'm sure, a lot of things that help you in your uh, your, your business today. So talk a little bit about what is a TRA, right? I mean, this you and I had a little more, you know, context, a little more conversation to really kind of get the base, uh, you know, understanding of it. But it, it is a little complicated. So let's, you know, explain it, explain it to uh, at the very high level, just kind of key parties involved, why it's created, and kind of how it works. So just kind of set the stage for us here. So in terms of what a TRA is, and relative to some of the analogies that you likely have brought onto your show over the course of the last year or so. There are, it reminds many of what pharmaceutical royalties were in the 2000s and what musical royalties were in the 2010s. So long dated annuity like cash flows that are uncorrelated to broader markets. And so that's at least what we do. In terms of the asset itself um, and the opportunity set, it's called a $30 billion opportunity and growing with increased adoption. We like to say as a firm, that not only is there riches in the niches, but it is also the largest opportunity set that people have just never heard of, tax. Um, so across a number of things, think about us almost buying the standard deduction, a concept that many are probably familiar with, um, but for corporations. Names in our portfolio that we've transacted with include the likes of a Remax, a Shake Shack, a Duffin Phelps. So public issuers that people have seen, understand their 
propositions, they're not small businesses, they're relatively large and they're public companies in nature. In terms of the product, it is a long dated annuity that is one, uncorrelated, two, cash yielding, and three, serves as a call option on higher corporate tax rates. Those are attributes that are interesting to many. And it's created by just a misunderstanding of tax more broadly, primarily on the front of, I mean, how often do you look forward to going to your dentist? Not very often, we'll say that. <laughs> In the same way, most people run away from tax season. And that's like one of the misunderstandings driven by the fact that most people don't want to have to deal with much in the way of tax and tax professionals, unfortunately for my brethren in this space, rarely have ever speak English. And that creates a incredible challenge, but also an opportunity for us, um, to bring light to this overall opportunity set. Yeah, no, so, so interesting. And what I love about this whole world of alternative investments, right, is as we kind of see these new things start to percolate over time, like you mentioned, you know, music royalties, you know, I've seen other things is, you know, uh, unique is investing in distilleries and, you know, casks of, uh, for wine or, uh, uh, you know, harder liquors. I've seen, you know, buying fractional shares of horse, uh, you know, racing horses. And I mean, it's really creating liquidity, creating markets around assets that have different characteristics. But being able to bring it to a different audience to where maybe um, there was no market, right? And in this case, you're kind of one of the first in creating a market to transact on these assets that are created that the companies that have on the balance sheet don't really want to hold because it's not, you know, very advantageous to them from a allocation of capital or resources standpoint. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of buyers out there, I'm assuming, you, we've talked a little bit about just what you have to do to go to drum up these types of assets. It's, it's difficult to find and explain all that. And so you've kind of created this, this very unique niche that is totally uncorrelated to, you know, the, the markets and has some other unique aspects. So let, let's kind of give a, give an example here of, of how this is created and two of the kind of key parties are in, you know, what the transaction might look like just at a high level. So use some kind of just more of a case study, but just use simple numbers so we can kind of get a sense of how this, how this works. Absolutely. So the, there is a fundamental tax transaction that occurs whenever a company goes public. Um, many businesses here in the U S are formed in several formats that being passed through entities might that be a limited liability corporation, a partnership or an S corporation. And so whenever you go public here in the US, unless you are electing for an MLP or a REIT designation for tax purposes, you ultimately have to become a C corp. As a result, you undertake a tax transformation and there is a taxable transaction known as an C transaction that occurs. That transaction results in the pre-IPO shareholders paying a large tax liability and as a result, also creating and delivering to the newly public company a large tax asset for which they share it via a tax receivable agreement. So the key stakeholders in this transaction are one, the public company, which receives a large tax asset, and two, 
the pub, uh, pre-IPO shareholder who not only paid a large tax liability, but also received a large ta tax asset in the transaction. Many of these parties are, app, are private equity funds. So think about them as having many portfolio companies that they take public on a regular basis. And for private equity funds, they have 10-year fund lives. They may take a company public in year six of their fund. And over time, as the company grows and they sell down their exposure, they then are at the tail end of their funds. And these tax assets might survive 10 years after that. And so some of the holders that we've transacted with, they run the gamut from management team, co-investors, private equity funds. And they're just looking to wrap up finite fund life vehicles. So in that sense, yeah. we are almost helping them provide liquidity or a somewhat misunderstood asset um, in order for them to deliver proceeds back to their investors, one, and two, reduce the administrative burden with closing down a fund. Right. Okay. So let's break down a little bit further because there's a lot of, lot of information there. So what you're saying is on these companies that are going IPO, they go onto an exchange, become publicly traded. To do so, you have to change the structural ownership of your firm, right? And most uh, stocks and companies that are traded on exchanges are C-Corps. That's a requirement unless you have an exemption, either being an MLP, Master Limited Partnership, or a REIT. But most of our C-Corps, right? So when you, when you, uh, go public, you have to convert the structure, but you've had your legacy structure, which most people, you know, when they're building businesses that are private and not publicly traded, they're usually using limited liability companies, LLCs, limited partnerships, other types of partnerships or S-Corps, like you said, because you're not generally going to start with a C-Corp unless you have to, right? That's, yeah. that's kind of the idea. Unless you have a capital back for Yeah, there are, there are reasons. There are, there are times when it makes sense. Um, but as you're kind of making this transition, what you're saying is you kind of have this, you said tax transformation that is creating this uh, transaction that, you know, between the new publicly traded company and the older company or the old shareholders. So talk a little bit about that. So basically the, the shareholders of the pre-IPO company, they have a receivable from the new publicly traded company. Is, is that correct? That's right. So what they're doing is they now have an agreement between these two parties where they're going to be receiving X amount of, um, you know, cash per year over a set period of time. Well, what you were just saying at the end there is a lot of these shareholders of these pre-IPO companies, they're funds and they have, you know, designated fund terms. And if they're liquidating these assets, um, uh, through you know the IPO, they're getting a nice big you know uh, you know capital event in the fund. They now are kind of winding it down potentially, and they don't want to have to hold on to this kind of probably small asset as a percent of the overall fund that now is a receivable over a long period of time. And there's an administrative burden. It's just you know you have to send K ones for the next ten years to your investor. So it creates kind of this annoying you know kind of pebble in the shoe that they don't want to deal with. And so they're willing to sell this asset at potentially a discount. Am I, am I right so far? 
Absolutely. So you okay. are 100%. We're a secondary market purchaser of these assets. So up to this point, there hasn't really been a market for these assets, right? I mean, talk a little bit about what does the market look like? Is, has there been a market? I mean, if there has been, I'm sure it's, you know, been very, you know, haphazard or idiosyncratic. Absolutely. So it's been a large growing opportunity set, even though these assets have been around for almost 30 plus years. Mm. They are just relatively to many market participants novel, um, despite their age. And most people don't quite understand the opportunity set. And there are uh, several reasons why. So the first of which is the domain expertise necessary to underwrite the opportunity. Hmm. Um, and we talked a little bit about that where my brethren have not done a good job of translating text into English. So one, helping people understand um, the value of these. Assets. Two is around duration whereby the market hasn't formed around that primarily because private capital vehicles are many times um, ETFs and whatnot, where money can come in and out very quickly. In order to hold this piece of paper, you need to have 10 plus year capital where you have locked up vehicles. Most private credit funds have four to six year paper. They can't hold that. The third reason is and is around return expectations. If you're doing private credit, for which you've interviewed others, like they're delivering consistently 12 to 14 percent. They don't. It's a well understood market. It's not terrible amount of brain damage. Very liquid, relatively liquid. You all of a sudden look at that and you're like, if I want, I can do something simple and get a 14 percent. Do I? And I have to undertake all sorts of brain damage to do this. Like I want to get paid for. And so there's been a big bid-ass spread between sellers and buy potential buyers on the opportunity side. And so the overall opportunity as a result makes it incredibly challenging to drive capital formation, primarily because you need someone who came from the deal world who also understands tax and is relatively commercial to bring it all together. And that hasn't quite existed in the same body bar very long. And so for our many sellers who are looking for liquidity, who are just finding a void in the space. And that's really where we step in. Got it. Yeah. So you're basically trading with the pre-IPO shareholders. Hey, I'll pay you a lump sum at a discount to hit kind of a turn threshold that I want to hit. And you don't have to deal with the kind of tail of this annuity like payment stream, right? And so they can... You know, take a, a one-time payment and be done with it, close the fund, move on. And you can underwrite this asset and purchase it and receive the kind of payment stream over, over a set period of time. And so what you're really doing, I mean, in the most simplest form is you're buying a receivable from a publicly traded company. So you're really underwriting the credit worthiness of the payee, right? In this case, like you said, Remax and Duff and Phelps and others. And so talk about kind of the process when you got to, you know, get the parties to agree what the asset is, the value of it is, and um, you get them to transact. But then you also got to do the underwriting and make sure, you know, it's a, it's a, a risk reward, uh, reward profile that makes sense for investors. So what kind of uh, discounts are you generally purchasing these, you know, TRAs at from um, the shareholders? 
So we typically pay between 25 to 40 cents of the dollar, which translates into a an annual return in the mid to high teens from a target perspective. And so that to many is attractive primarily because the comparable debt that one of these holders, uh, one of these obligors might have, a Remax or a Straight Track, is in the six to eight percent zip code. And so, like earning a thousand points on top of that, they find to be very compelling. So, they look at these businesses, they say they're public, they are investment grade, near investment grade, and I have the potential to capture a thousand points of spread on an uncorrelated asset relative to their overall performance. Because if I buy the stock, I'm very earning sensitive. Here, we can see a significant deterioration relative to the earnings power of a business before we experience any deterioration. And so they find that to be a compelling um, sale in that regard. And so that's at least how we think about how opportunity set. There are fundamentally three risks that we underwrite. The first that you mentioned, bankruptcy risk, which is the company remaining a going concern and so for us, obviously, the attributes being IG or near investment grade are very valuable. The second risk is around corporate tax rates. So if we have a linear relationship with tax rates and mm -hmm. tax were to go down, we have our, we see a downward um, movement in our returns. Correspondingly, on the way up, we have an upward movement to our returns. So that's inverse to almost every asset class. So some of our investors view us as a tail risk hedge to the rest of the portfolio. The final risk is the for, um, extensions. What I might describe as you never lose a tax asset, you merely defer it. So if you can't use it in a certain year, you get to use it whenever you are profitable again. So think about it as right. your MOIC all your cash on cash remaining constant, your IRR just were deteriorating as a result of it being a time-weighted measure. Got it. So in this case, using just names to make it easier, Remax, they have maybe not a good year. Hey, interest rates are up, transaction volumes are down, we have a net loss. So we we are choosing to defer um, you know, paying this because it's not you know, creative to the bottom line and you don't have a whole lot of uh, ability to force them to pay. I mean, obviously you'll get paid at some point, but either that, that's what you're talking about. Is that, is that accurate? Right. That's right. Okay. Um, so they don't really have a choice um, in so far um, that obviously penalties associated with such a deferral. Um, but for many of them, they are repatriating part of the benefit that they receive from the IRL. And so, like, for them, it's just a transfer of value sure. away from what they might otherwise have paid. Okay. Okay. So, you have an agreement that's already in place, and there's penalties that they don't pay, but that penalty might be less than what they're going to get, you know, from a tax loss and not having to pay the IRS. So, they might choose to to have that penalty incur be incurred and, uh, and not pay it out. But it's still, they're not... They still have to pay it back at a certain point, so it's not a matter okay. of of if; it's just a more of a matter of when. What? Um, and then you go going back to because you mentioned at the very beginning that this is a call option on corporate tax rates, right? And so what you're saying is you have a a 
positive correlation to tax rates. And so if tax rates go up, you know, that increases your uh, returns. And if they go down, it decreases them. Um, and so a lot of investors use this as kind of a tax hedge because in most investments would uh, perform inversely to the tax rates, right? So that, that makes sense. Um, and what, what has been the trend on, on tax rates? You know, I'm- We are yeah, at the lower more, more in um, from a corporate tax rate perspective here in the US. So um, we are at 21% federally today. Um, in the past, obviously before, as a result of the Trump tax cuts prior to that, it was 35%. And then it's been as high as in the 90s. Um, dating back to early in the century. And so- In the in, U.S. In the U.S. Um, wow. Which is out of curiosity, what do you think the corporates um, pay in terms of the overall U.S. federal budget revenues? Corporate pay, the, what do you mean by that? What percentage of, of the U.S. federal revenues do you think corporates contribute? Oh, good question. Um let's say 25%. I might shock you by sharing that it's closer to six and going down. Okay. Um, the vast right. majority of taxes are borne by social security, individual and personal taxes, among others. Interesting. Interesting. So, so hey, is, we're, we're running, running deficits that, yeah, we're just going down, right? All right. But there is a chance that in the world that we live in and based on where we are in society and we might see potential changes in corporate tax rates to the upside as well. Yeah, interesting. Are you are you seeing uh, the bid ask spread? You know, widen or contract based on kind of political regime. Like we're in a, we're in a political, um, you know, year in twenty twenty four here, and you know, could have some things that are going on. Does that impact kind of the? the price discovery of when you're in transacting these assets or not that we always so much. Joke yeah. that we originate as Republicans and we asset manage as Democrats. Um <laughs> the elements there are like we can't price a change in corporate taxes. Um that's fundamentally also a risk that our our investors want that exposure to. So let's say like someone that we were buying from like yourself, Ben you might be like, here, let's have a sharing arrangement. If tax rates would have moved up, then I get I capture X value. Um, but if I did that, then my investors wouldn't get the benefit of that outcome, right? Which is the hedge that they're looking for for their broader portfolio. And so in that context, it's hard for us to give up that change in value um in in order to meet a meet a bit bit ass. And so it's an education sharing how we think about that with the seller um, to arrive at a transaction. But you're not wrong. There are many transactions that may get held up as a result. Yeah, interesting. When you're trying to um, create opportunities from a deal standpoint, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of chicken and eggs, right? Because you're kind of buying these as one-offs, or maybe you have a fund. I think you have a fund. You know, so you, do you have capital kind of at, at the, the ready to go buy these or... You know, is it kind of deal specific as you, you know, get to a, a deal that you can raise the capital for? Or is it a little bit of both? So we have four flagship funds um, with an access of $300 million of capital under management. Think about them primarily from leading endowments and foundations. And so 
what we're looking to do is we have committed capital vehicles that we can deploy capital out of immediately and or if, if should the opportunity arise. Um, so that enables us to be relatively nimble versus what some might know as the um, independent sponsor model where they're going out to raise capital against an opportunity. Um, so ours is more so um, in a committed fund structure. Okay, got it. And then when you're reaching out to these companies to you know try to transact on their TRAs, you know, I think you showed me a screenshot of someone you reached out to. They're like, I don't even know what that is. You're probably talking to the wrong guy, right? So what, what's that process like? I mean, I, I know there's a lot of education involved, but what's, I mean, how difficult is it to kind of unearth a a good deal that you can actually transact on at a good good basis? So I think it's more so, to your point, a big educational element as to what we do. Um, and that's a function of the nascency of our opportunity set um, in the minds of capital market participants. And so a big part of, as we engage with holders like that, um, our job is to demonstrate to them that they have it, one, two, to give them a compelling offer for them to pay attention. So for many of them, when we say, we're willing to give you $10 million sight unseen, they're like, okay, well, sorry. I didn't even know, like, evidently I'm a valuable asset. So what is it? How do I assess if it's a $10 million to get them off? And at which point of time, we go down the rabbit hole with them, helping them uncover the value of their asset. And for many of them, they're inc they incredibly thankful because they're like, this is almost found money for us um, and in many regards. And so that element is a big educational push whereby we have these over hundreds of conversations and and they might not sell today, but over time, they may have considerations as it pertains to selling. Might that be the finite fun life consideration, but also for many holders, it's complexity and estate issues where similar to like a mineral royalty, like you might not want to distribute your mineral royalty to your four kids. For many of them, they're like, we just want to distribute cash to our kids. Let's just sell this to you and move on. Um, or they might have an even more compelling option. We spoke with the former CEO of a large business and they were like, I am about to invest and be CEO um, of a new concept that I'm incredibly excited about. And I want to, invest personally a ton of money. So you're telling me that you're going to earn, pay me 25, 40 cents on a dollar for this asset. If I'm going to make a hundred times my money on this, I I'll do that each and every day. And so it's a opportunity cost um, that he is weighing in his situation. And so it's a little bit unique to each underlying pattern that we are engaged with. Um, but our job is to help grow the market longer term and when a time for us, we hope to be able to be the liquidity provider of choice um, whenever someone finally desires liquidity. Got it. Very cool, Andy. Well, this is a very unique asset that I didn't even heard of until you reached out to me. And um, not to say that you know I'm aware of everything out there, but it's it's definitely cool to see a interesting asset class that you're providing liquidity to that is a pretty big market and growing. And uh, you're still able to purchase a pretty significant discount. So very, very cool. And it sounds like you raise a lot of money for institutional investors. Do you work with kind of more high net worth retail investors as well? Absolutely. 
So we've worked with a number of thoughtful investors, um, especially many stakeholders um, in our space. What is actually shocking is that there have been a bunch of holders of these GRAs who have actually sold us their GRA and subsequent to that, given us money and our funds. Because they're like, what you do is so unique and so cool. Like, I just want to be part of your story. And so that's been an incredible point of validation. Um, but we also produce um, for many of these smaller investors, like in income stream, um, like the cash yielding nature of our product that's uncorrelated, they find to be incredibly valuable. And from a tax characteristics perspective, it's tax deferred and we pay out long-term cap gains. And so they're like, okay, so it's an income-like product that's primarily capital gains that is incredibly valuable to many holders like that. And so that's a big part of what we seek to do. And it's a big part of market adoption. In order for us to create longer term more TRAs, we need people to be educated about the opportunity. A great way to educate them about the opportunity is to get them invested, put money in their pockets, and they then say like, hey, how do I make, I've invested in several private equity portfolio companies. How do we bring this to them whenever they go public? Yeah, makes sense. What what do you see as the market maybe matures, becomes a little more efficient? Like right now you have the advantage of major lack of education. There is no liquidity, but you know, liquidity and um, a more efficient market drives down returns generally, right? So what do you kind of expect the life cycle of this to be? Is this an opportunity set that's going to be available for the next decade because it's just so difficult to transact in? Or do you kind of see we have a short window here to, to buy as much as you can at the at the, the basis that you're talking about uh, before things become a little more efficient? Competition is not a if, it's a when. Um, just like in every asset class, niches end up getting exploited. Um, what I might articulate is some niches are harder to exploit than others. So I'll give the instance. One avenue that many within the tax realm are relatively familiar with is do you know that H&R Block is the largest factory um, of tax receivables associated with your tax refunds? So you file very high. The IRS might pay you in 30 days. H&R Block has a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar business lending people money or giving you that money now in return for more money in the future. Yep. Not many people have tried to disrupt that because they're like, it's, they're just such a big yeah player in that space. And like, I don't know when's the last time you went to Europe, but if you're, you or your wife did any shopping, like oftentimes you'll be entitled to what is known as a value added tax refund. And when you go to the airport and instead of waiting for the money from the EU government, you would say, Global Blue, give me 90 cents on the dollar for it. Same as what HRL Block basically does. And they do the exact same thing. Like oh, there's the largest aspect people just have never thought of that just sits in plain sight. Like it's just because the underlying product is relatively not the most interesting in the world. That's a fault of yeah. professionals. Um, but <laughs> the fact that um, it's just a very misunderstood opportunity. So yes, as the more intellectual capital comes into our space, there will be incremental competition, but it is such a large space that in every dollar that you make as a professional, the US and the, the taxes are 40% of it. Whenever you sell your business, 
that's 25% of it. Whenever you sell a stock or anything like that, it is the largest opportunity set that people are just not thinking about relative to everything else. Musical royalties. Everyone can associate themselves with musical royalties. Not many people come out of college saying like, I want to be a master of the universe in the tax world. That's just not a thing. Yeah, makes sense. Andy, this has been really, really fun. Thank you so much for helping just uncover this really unique asset class. And uh, sounds like you guys are doing some cool stuff over there and, and hope the best for you. What's the best way for people to uh, learn more about what you're doing? Absolutely. Um, and, oh, and thank you for the time. Like the best way to reach us on LinkedIn, uh, where people can reach out. We've been relatively active on that, right? Providing educational materials on our space because look, as they might get leader, it is incumbent upon us um, to educate the universe. And so a big part of what we do is trying to share um, what we do, how we go about doing it, and ultimately being a good steward for the industry. Awesome. And what's your website again for those who want to uh, check? Parallaxis, uh, which is plxcap.com. Okay. Awesome. Andy, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time, sir.